Okay, here we go. Welcome everyone, my name is Luke Thomas and this is the UFC London post-fight special. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have spoilers, so if you don't want to know what happened, now is your chance to get away, okay? I'm going to play the stinger, and after that, we're going to get into spoilers. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's break everything uh, down. Okay. And we are back. Thank you guys so much for joining me. As you can tell, a bit of a different scenario today. I am in my new studio. Now, let me just sort of make a statement up front. This is not the final arrangement. This is literally my very first arrangement. I have to find exactly what format works. Uh, maybe this will be it. Maybe it won't. But it's certainly an upgrade from what I've been doing. As I mentioned before, my name is Luke Thomas. I am the host of The Luke Thomas Show on Sirius XM Rush Channel 93. I am also the senior editor at MMAfighting.com. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Please like the video and subscribe to the channel below. I have put in a ton of improvements, and I'm hoping that you guys will enjoy them. Um, not merely today, but of course going forward here on out. Okay, so this is the UFC Fight Night. Uh, let's see, Verdum versus Volkov. UFC Fight Night 127. UFC London post-fight special here on my YouTube channel. As I mentioned before, if you don't want any spoilers, now is your chance to get away from them. You have five, four, three, two, one. This video, by the way, is also brought to you by the Beta Academy. There's a link in the description box below. If you ever want to train and you're in the D.C. area, you can do that um, at the corner of 14th and Florida Northwest. It's where I'm a member. Go check them out. Give them a run. Yeah? You can do cardio there. You can do weight training there. You can do jiu-jitsu there. You can do Muay Thai there. It's a big, big facility, and uh, it's in a really easy-to-get-to area here in Washington, D.C. Okay. With that out of the way... All of the pleasantries uh, done. Let's get to the show itself. UFC Fight Night, Verdun versus Volkov 127, or UFC London, is now in the books. This took place at the O2 Arena in London, England. Um, this was headlined. Let me refresh this. This was headlined by a heavyweight contest between Alexander Volkov and Fabricio Verdun. So, here is the result. Now that we have gotten rid of the people who are... Deeply concerned about spoilers. Volkov defeats Verdum via KO at 138 of the fourth round. What is the story here? A couple things that stand out to me. Number one, Verdum looked kind of off from the beginning. I don't know exactly what how to explain it. Number one, he looked like he was not necessarily in the best shape. I don't mean to... I'm not judging his physique exactly. I just mean he didn't look like he had awesome cardio. Remember, this is the guy that beat Cain Velasquez in part by having better cardio, at least for that environment. Now, of course, he had trained in Mexico City specifically for a, a longer period of time than Cain Velasquez. But nevertheless, like it was, you know, that, that shows guile and veteran experience and commitment to the craft and, um, and, and then, of course, better cardiovascular results in the end. And I, I don't know that cardio was exactly his problem here, but it looked like cardio was at least one of the issues that he was grappling with. Um, so it was just a sort of bizarre performance where... Not only did he not have necessarily the best cardio, but on top of that, he uh, was like flopping to his back and easily off-balanced and I don't know. He just looked like he wasn't fully prepared for it. Now, that's not to take away anything from what Alexander Volkov did. You show up at, to the time you show up, the guy is there in whatever state he's in, 
And there's a lot of things to say positively about Alexander Volkov, which we'll get to in a minute. But I don't, you can't look at this and say this is the guy that... Well, it is the guy that became Velasquez. But I, I don't know. Just for me, something felt a little bit off about it. But I don't want, I don't want to really detract from Volkov's um, success necessarily. It was just... I don't know, bro. Something about it was just a little bit weird. Now, what's the story of the fight? The story of the fight is that first round... Verdum was able to get takedowns and get on top, not once, but twice. From there on out, it was a bit of a different story. He had to pull... Verdum is one of the few guys, like Demi and Maya, and they, they might be the only two, who will, like, pull a guy on top of him, right? Uh, when he when he wants for a takedown, if he can't actually get the physical takedown. And a lot of these guys still have jiu-jitsu takedowns, where it's not really, like, a double where they turn and, like, pivot on, their, on, the, on the angle of the takedown. They'll just sort of, like make a penetration step and then with the outside leg trip out and then trip a guy either direction or another or straight back. So you saw a lot of those takedowns here in this fight and they were pretty successful actually. But what really happened was he would later on shoot, get stuffed. It wasn't a super hard stuff. Like he wasn't breaking contact Volkov. So what Verdun would do is he would pull Volkanov, uh, or excuse me, Volkov on top of him. I was thinking of Volkanovsky for a second. He would pull Volkov on top of him. Now keep in mind, that's what you always really want to do in jiu-jitsu, right? You want to manipulate someone's weight where you're getting on top of them or you're you're lifting their base and you're pulling them on top of you. That way you can then control them, attach them to you, and then turn. That's what he's doing, right? Think about it that way. Like People like, if you just look at it, you might be like, well, what is the value of doing that? Well, if I can attach you to me and I can roll, well, then I can, you, you understand, you can change the balance there. So a lot of it is that. Although, I have to say from Verdum, he had a, he always has a really good half guard series where he can take the back from a deep half. He can do a Homer Simpson sweep where you go one direction, then you turn and you come out on top. And you almost get like a single leg finish on it. Um, he can, uh, he can do, he, he had one where I've seen this before, a lot of people don't know this. Okay, so if I go for a for if I go for a deep half, I've got one leg on the outside, right? This hand you want to tuck underneath the same leg. Uh, Volkov didn't stop it, so he took this hand Verdum did, and he shoved it in his chin and used that to roll. Verdum has a nasty, nasty, nasty half guard series. But Volkov, the real story of the fight here is: is Volkov as good on the ground as Verdum? Well, nobody in heavyweight is. No, of course not. However, he didn't need to be. The two big successes to me were, number one, you go back to Verdum's Noguera fight. You go back to the Antonio Silva fight in Force. This fight, there's several other fights where he did it, but the Silva fight, the Noguera fight, really stand out to me as obvious examples of it, where he really used the half guard to get up on top, or again, take the back, just find a way out of the trouble, whether it's a Homer Simpson sweep or not from the deep half guard position. And in this case... You just saw Volkov never really get too far out of position. He did get his back taken once, but he was able to reverse it. And for the most part, he was able to ride on top without too much of an issue. So that was actually kind of really good. The second one was on the passing. Now, I mentioned it up front. Someone was like, up front was like, well, uh, I think it was MMA Mania's Twitter account. They were saying, you know, uh, he's having trouble passing the guard. And I was like, well, first of all, let's be clear about this. Verdum's, go- Verdum's passing is so good, he should never have any trouble passing anyone's guard at heavyweight. But this is what I mean when I say he looked off. Either he was tired or, I don't know, something. But whatever the case, what Volkov did was, if you notice, there are several times what he saw Verdum do was grab the ankle, ankle slash like heel area, 
of Volkov and he tried to stuff it between the legs and sit on it. That's what you want to do. I want to take your potential hook or the way you cross your legs. I want to stuff it between mine and I want to sit on it. I want to collapse your heel to your thigh or your rear end, right? Completely close the knee. And you saw him try to do that several times and he couldn't do it. And I thought, well, he must be just sort of like testing strength or setting up some kind of a different pass or or something because he knows how to get past that. It's not like length. I mean, you have to understand, peak Verdum, whatever that's worth to you, peak Verdum's guard passing is so good that a guy being a few inches taller than normal is of no issue. Besides, even if you don't want to like stuff it in between, you can just step over it and it has the same kind of effect if you step over and then drive your hips in. Jacare is really, really good at that. So it was just like weird, but he was trying and he couldn't get it. So here's what I mean. What Volkov did was he gave up a lot of minutes and he gave up a couple of rounds in the process, maybe several rounds. But what he did was he never usually, for the most part, got too far out of position from any kind of half guard attempt from um, Verdum. He never let the Kimura get too out of control, although he got pretty close a couple times, but just enough to stay in the fight, which is really all you need. And he had pretty good guard retention. He had pretty good guard retention. So in all those scenarios, all he had to do was like just not let the fight get too far out of hand. And that's exactly what he did. Now, you might be saying, well, look, you've started off this whole fight breakdown talking about, well, Volkov um, was fighting a guy who wasn't the same and it just didn't look good and we're just sort of taking things away from him. No, let's, let's be absolutely clear about this. Number one, it's very hard to stop the guard passing of Fabrizio Verdum, even if he's going at half speed. He went half speed against Brandon Vera, and he just burned right through his guard. So just keep that in mind, right? Right, right to mount, as a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken. So even a half attempt from Fabrizio is going to be a nightmare to deal with, number one. Number two, this is a guy that got out-wrestled in Bellator by Czech Congo. Look at him now. Here are the, here are the last what four or five fights from Alexander Volkov. This is his UFC run. So he lost to Tony Johnson in 2015 in Bellator and then Czech Congo. He gets released. He goes to M1. He gets a couple wins over one of my favorite regional fighters, Attila Vey. Then he goes to the UFC and he barely beats Timothy Johnson, but he beats him. Then he beats Roy Nelson. Then he stops Stefan Struve and then he stops Fabricio Verdum. Ladies and gentlemen, that is absolute, unequivocal, incredible, 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 incredible improvement. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. To be out-wrestled, now that of course was a three-round contest, I believe, against Czech Congo. Nevertheless, to be out-wrestled by him and to, to, in this case, show good guard retention, just enough positioning in half guard to not go crazy. Same thing with any kind of Kimura attempt from half guard. Um... It's it's pretty special. It's very, very good. Now, there's a bigger story there. Of course, Francis Ngannou fell short against Stipe Miocic, but here he is. Then you look at guys in their 20s. Volkov, 29 years old, born in October, right, of uh, 1988. Volkov, Blades, Tui And we'll see how Tui ultimately does against Arlovsky in June. But we're finally seeing some turnover at heavyweight. One of the reasons why Miocic versus Cormier was made was that there just wasn't enough turnover happening. So they're like, fuck it, let's just put this guy against this guy, champ versus champ, because neither of these divisions have enough of a contendership queue going on to make any kind of sense. Well, here we go. Now we have a bit of a queue. 
Now we have something going here. Now we have some turnover. Now we have the young feasting on the old. That is exactly how it's supposed to happen. Verissimo Verdum is older than 40. Um, and now you have somebody younger than 30 who beat him. That is the way it's supposed to happen. And you don't need all of them to be hits promotionally. You just need a couple of them to stand out. And I don't know which one it's going to be. Maybe none of them in that case, the ones I mentioned. Maybe Nganu gets back on the horse. I don't know. All I'm pointing out is you're starting to see that natural turnover that you need for a division to really be healthy. And that's actually really pretty exciting, to be quite honest. So um, fantastic, fantastic opportunity here for Alexander Volkov to maybe get a title shot to... I don't know exactly where he goes from here. Where are the rankings? Uh, let me pull that up. UFC, here we go, rankings. Whatever those are worth. But they exist, so you have to take them seriously. So as it stands, as it stands, Volkov's at seven, but there's two fives, Hunt and Lewis. I don't know if he's going to leave. Based on the way rankings go, it's going to be hard to know how far he goes. But Blades is at four. Verdum was at three. Man, what a great win. So he might bump to four, and Blades might bump to three. Overeem still at two. Think about that. In the top five now, Nganu, discounting Stipe, Nganu, Overeem, Verdum, Blades, and Lewis. Now you've got Lewis, Blades, Verdum is going to probably be out, but it's still in the top ten. And so Overeem is the last man standing among the newer crop of heavyweights in the top five. This is great news, folks. This is exactly what you want to see. Again, I don't know which one of those guys is going to be stars. Maybe none of them. But that doesn't matter. That's the natural process. And over time, I'm a process guy. If you have enough of the healthy process going on, eventually that will give rise to the next big star. Or, you know, some kind of a marketable personality that they can really lean on and rely on. So, that's the way to go here. Uh, okay. So, by the way... This little show off here just for a second. I got to make use of it, but y'all check this out, right? I've got a second camera right here. Hi, second camera. So we're going to start. This is my only my first one here, right? I can't make too much of a big deal out of it, but I just want to note that like the performance upgrades, I wasn't kidding about them. They're real. Now, they've got many, many, many more to go. I'm going to start shooting these on a DSLR, but I just kind of wanted to show you this. Um, because I was pretty excited about it. And we'll put this back up. And then we'll transition back. Okay. Here we are. Back to this one. Alright. So that's your main event. I don't have much more of a, a take, I think, than what we saw there. Other than just really great stuff um, from Volkov. And just the patience. Really, 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 really great patience. Really great... Um, I don't know, man. Like, I just, I just love seeing growth in younger fighters. Right, I just love seeing them turn that corner. I just love seeing a different version of themselves. Not everyone's able to do that. It's not a given. You can work your ass off and not necessarily make a lot of progress. It's hard. And look, by the way, there's still some things to go here with Volkov, especially on the ground. Takedown defense, not necessarily all that great. And by the way, a couple of things to note. One thing, go back and look at some of Mauricio Verdum's takedowns. When he got the takedown in open space, he was able to, with the left arm, to get the cross face right away. You never saw Volkov get a hand up and block it. That's big. That's big. So, in the end, like I said, on balance, because there's a lot of positives, a lot of negatives, and on balance, the positives outweighed the negatives. But we should still have a little bit of managed expectations for him, only because that there's still a little bit more of a ways to go, right? But uh, a pretty nice win. Uh, in the co-main event, Jan Blahovich defeating... And by the way, actually one more thing about this, if I may. 
Fabrizio Verdum repping Akmat MMA. It's just totally reprehensible. You know, it's weird, man. I really like Fabrizio Verdum. I've always enjoyed what he brought to the sport. You don't see a lot of guys at heavyweight who are really this good on the ground. He's been an asset to the sport for a very long time. I, I have many, 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 many positive things to say about Fabrizio Verdum. However, it is absolutely distressing, disappointing, and frankly, fucking gross that he represents Akmat MMA in the way that he does. He was wearing Akmat MMA. Of course, this is the MMA organization founded by Chechen dictator Ramzan Kadyrov, the guy who international human rights observers have said has been involved in a number of abuses, not least of which, of course, is a gay purge of his own citizens, or an attempted one anyway. And for Verdum to still take a check from him and then to rep him in that way, and I believe came out to a song in this event that was Russian in nature, and I'm wondering if it was related to that, and more to the point for the UFC to be party to this, what the fuck are they doing? You know, Ari Emanuel is out there getting awards for his commitment to the LGBT community, and I'm sure that he's done some really great things for them. I'm not saying that, but what are you... what? Guy, what are you doing here, buddy? This is super not okay. Super not okay. And I would really ask the UFC to do something about this. If he wants to do that in his private time, well, nobody can stop him. But they should have something to say about whether or not he's going to do that on their time. Fuck that. Fuck that noise. All right. Uh, okay. So, now, let us proceed to our co-main event. Jan Blahovich versus Jimmy Manoa. How funny is this? We were all complaining, and I and I was one of them. I, I certainly cannot pull myself away from this conversation, saying, "Oh God, who asked for this rematch? Nobody cares. No big deal. This sucks. Why get excited? And this fight was awesome. This fight was great. This was like everything you would want from a modern light heavyweight fight. At least one where there weren't necessarily the biggest stakes involved. And by the way, it actually turned in a way where." the person who had the most to gain did it, right? So Manawa headed into this contest at four in that division, Blahovich at 11. So if you're Manawa and you're four and you beat the number 11 guy, well, I don't know how much that really gets you. But if you're the number 11 guy and you beat the number four guy, well, now we have some movement. That movement, folks, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for in these divisions and these two divisions in particular, right? Because they had DC versus Tipe. And again, it's a fine fight. It'll be super exciting in July when it happens. I'm not hating on the fight itself. But I am saying there's larger circumstances here that make that fight uh, what it was and why it happened. That's because there wasn't enough turnover, as I mentioned, at heavyweight. Well, here we go. Again, I don't know if Jan Blahovich is necessarily the next big star. And by the way, how old is this gentleman? He is 35, so he's a little bit older as well. Nevertheless, people pushing through, even though he's not quite in that age bracket that we want, um, is a little bit better. Of course, it also speaks to the fact that that division is... Not what it once was. Nevertheless, what's the story of this fight? Pretty amazing. Uh, okay, here are the things that stood out to me. Number one, Manawa was single-shotting a lot. That included both upstairs and downstairs. That included both to the body and to the head. He didn't really put a lot of combinations together. Now, he's not ever really necessarily been a guy who was a combination striker. At least not in MMA. Uh, I mean, he did have... Don't get me wrong. He's got good combos when he uses them. But he's be, always been a bit of a... Let's let the four-ounce gloves do the work kind of fighter. But he's also been really good. Like, when, when is Jimmy Manawa at his best? Okay, it's when he lets his big power and his speed and his athleticism take a hold. But more than that, when he brings in trickery. Or as they say in American football, trickeration. Right, that's the really big story there. Um, so, for example, 
he went to that left hook to the body over and over and over and over and over again. Why? He did that in the Corey Anderson fight too because what he would do is he would, he literally, this was the finishing shot, go back and watch it. He fakes like he's going to the body. The hand comes down from Anderson and then, and then pardon me, and then up top, he gets hit with a left hook and that's what drops Corey Anderson. Right? He's really good about misdirection like that. So yes, it's not like heavy volume striking, but it's still... A, a certain degree of sophistication that's involved. And I thought that was actually missing here a little bit. I just felt like he was diving for left hooks and then throwing a, a head kick and then trying to roast the body. And some of them got through, don't get me wrong. But it was just a little bit single-shotting. Conversely, you saw the exact opposite from Jan Blachowicz. In his case, flurrying, volume striking. And he's not, in, in terms of the overall capacity of striking, the kind of guy Jimmy Manoa is. But nevertheless, it's just smart to do that. You saw him land a lot. He might miss the first two and then land the third. He might land the first two and miss the third. But nevertheless, he's getting through with a little bit more of a degree of consistency. Sealing it in the end with a takedown, by the way. Um, and of course, Manawa had his moments where he got taken down. He would like flip him over like the Andre Gavel half-guard sweep. But you know he didn't quite do it exactly right. So, for example, if you're really going to do a half-guard sweep, you actually wrap with an overhook. Uh, their arm, and then you throw them that way, or you you turn them that way. That way, you come out on again. I'm going to attach you to me, and so when I turn over, I'm going to have control of this position, and we're going to go together. Um, so you saw him just kind of like push off, but it was enough to create a scramble, scramble, and get back to his feet. So that was enough, I suppose, in that capacity. But point being was, cheers, everyone. The point being was, he was. Um, he was doing enough to stay on the feet. There was some looseness there of position. But it was Blahovich, the guy who I thought was pulling in the trickery, who was doing the volume striking. How did he drop Manawa in the first round? You go back and you watch. He started in orthodox stance. Manawa misses on a right. He then turns into the southpaw position and then throws a left hand and then an uppercut and then a flurry behind it and it lands and it ultimately drops him. You know, fundamentals win. Skills win fights. Basics are and are the backbone of skills, and uh, ultimately that was the difference for me. Now he had a, almost had a back take, but of course Jimmy scrambled out of it. Uh, both guys didn't necessarily have the best gas tank. Both of them kind of wore it. Hats off to both of them. They kind of stuck it to each other for for long portions of it. Again, Manoa might have been single shotting, but he was getting through too. I thought those left hooks to the body were just so vicious, right? Really, really good stuff from him in that sense. It was just you're like left hook, right hand, left hook, right hand, low kick. Um, by the way, speaking of that, how many times did Blahovich not only check a kick? Remember, you don't just raise your leg to check a kick. You have to angle out the shin. You have to greet their shin with yours. How many of y'all are willing to do that? Not many. And uh, he was. <laughs> he was. Kind of crazy. Kind of crazy. So several times really taking that option away from it. It was just a more complete performance from Blahovich. That's just really the bottom line here. Um I don't know what else to say about it. Except, they're probably going to do it a third time. They're one and one now. Now, when was the last one here? Let's see here. Uh, da, 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 da. So, they fought last. Let's see. Back in 2015. Progress, folks. Great progress. But since then... So, okay. So, since 2013, here is Jimmy Manoa. Lost to Gustafson. No shame there. Beats Blahovich. Loses to Anthony Johnson. Loses to, or excuse me, beats St. Peru, beats Corey Anderson. That was his peak one where he went faked low and then came high. Loses to Volkan Uzdemir, and you say, okay, well, no big deal. And then he loses to Blahovich. First time he's ever had two losses in a row back-to-back. -back. 
That's a bit of a different change. Plus, folks don't realize Jimmy Manoa, 38 years old. So he's a little bit long in the tooth for that division. By contrast, Jan Blahovich here, check this out. Now, he lost two in a row to Manoa and Corey Anderson back in 2015. He then beat Igor Pokryak. Uh, he then lost to Gustafsson again, no shame there, and then lost to Patrick Cummins in a bit of a disputed contest in 2017, but then came back and beat Devin Clark, beat Jared Cannonier. Now, that's big. And then beat Jimmy Manoa. Here he is, 35 years old, and Jan Blahovich is finally turning a corner at light heavyweight. So pretty important for him to be able to do that. And again, that would turn the rankings up a bit upside down. Currently, as it stands, Cormier sitting at uh, champion, obviously. Gustafsson's number one contender, Uzdemir, at number two. Teixeira at three. That's a bit of a tough spot for Gustafsson because the guy below him's already lost. The guy below him, below him, he just beat... And then was Jimmy Manawa. Now, Jimmy Manawa, I suppose, avoids a conflict because they're the same team. But okay, below that, you have Alir Latifi, who is also coming off a win, but is on the same team. And then below that, you have Ovin St. Preux, who I believe just lost. And then you have Shogun. And then below that, Serkinov, Anderson, Cummins, and then Blahovich. So Blahovich is going to jump up in the rankings here. But Gustafsson versus Blahovich, like that, that division needs some serious, some serious turnover. Jesus Christ. Um, but okay. Pretty good co-main event. We really appreciate those guys putting it out there on the line. By the way, if you're watching, please like the video. Subscribe to the channel. Again, y'all think this is nice? I am barely getting started with the studio. I'm going to repaint all the walls. Wait till you see all the artwork I'm about to hang. Y'all are going to see, man. This is, this, is, this is merely the tip of the iceberg. This is nothing. I haven't even put in, I haven't even plugged in my DSLR. We're going to shoot cinema quality in this bitch. So please, like this video and subscribe to the channel. I've been making some investments, man. I hope it, I hope you guys are noticing that it's going to pay off. Uh, okay, so with that out of the way, let's go to now Tom Dukenwa defeating Terrian Ware. 29-28, 29-28, 30-27. Let me state this up front as something that needs to be mentioned anytime there's a close fight. And no matter who you scored in this one, I think we can all reasonably agree, pretty close fight. So... Anytime that you have a close fight, you need to understand that virtually any scorecard is justifiable. As I mentioned before, here's why. Yes, the scoring criteria ostensibly lays out certain things that we're supposed to value over others. But the problem is that the interpretation of what that means is hard to come by. Spatially, if you're next to the cage, you're going to have a different relationship to it than if you're watching on TV. Historically, whatever your biases are about leg kicks or uppercuts or whatever, whatever matters to you and what doesn't matter to you, do body shots matter? Do you have an overemphasis on body shots? Do you call them down the middle? Whatever. That's going to affect your judgment. So you have the spatial bias. You have this preference bias in terms of what criteria you think, even in accordance with the laws the rules set out how you interpret them. Um, you're going to have another bias about whether or not you have the physiological problems related to eyesight or hearing or whatever. Does the crowd affect you? Does the crowd not affect you? Um, what Does the action happen in front of you? Does the action not happen in front of you, even if you are next to the cage? Um, did, what did you see? What did you not see? What did you miss when you blinked? Were you distracted? Any kind of uh, you know, epistemological concern you could have here, for, to, sorry to use the word, but it's true, they're all relevant here. So the point being is, if a fight is close, you you basically cannot complain about the decision. I would say that the 30-27 is a little weird. I don't know how you don't give Terry and Ware the third round, but this is MMA, and that's the, that's the world in which we are living. So just take that for what it's worth. 
So, how did I score? I didn't. My hunch was Duke and Wah two rounds to one, but I could have seen uh, Ware two rounds to one. At a bare minimum, I saw Ware winning the third. Here is an interesting thing that's happening to Tom Dukenwa. If you watched him on the regional scene, it's not that he didn't have a bit of a meat and potatoes game. You know, movement, sticking and moving, leg kicking, as you saw in this contest, jabbing, getting out of the way. Um, but he had a, a, a much more dramatic flair that has since gone totally absent in the UFC. Now, why is that? I thought Jordan Breen, my colleague over at Sherdog.com, had a great tweet about it when he said, you know, he can't just be a button masher and hope that that stuff works. You know what I'm talking about where you get the controls in a game and you're just like slamming your thumbs home to see what happens. And it sort of feels like that was that dramatic flair. He was just kind of throwing it whenever he felt like it. He was taking risks whenever he felt like it. And he has clearly withdrawn to a degree with respect to that portion of his game. Now, it just so turns out that the meat and potatoes portion of his game is still pretty freaking good. So, he actually does a lot of really good stuff. Uh, stuff. Excuse me. I thought his low kicks were really good in this fight. I thought his movement slowed as a consequence of the body shots from Terry and Ware. But nevertheless, I thought he did a pretty good job of staying on his toes and moving around. And he gave up, you know, I thought some scrambles a little bit too easily. And his shots were a little bit and all that great. And Terry and Ware didn't do as much as he could have in that capacity. Although I thought the takedown defense of Tom Dukenwald was also improved. It's not, it's not like he's not improving it's just that the thing that made everyone's eyeballs go like this, it turns out he's not been able to reasonably bring it up to the next level. You know, it's interesting. It's like a reverse John Jones. John Jones had all these like ah, elbows and just crazy stuff he was able to do. And his coaches, they kind of like took that away a little bit because they said he's doing this because he just doesn't know what else to do. So let's give him like good uppercuts and good fundamentals. And you saw the, the fruit of that in the second Daniel Cormier fight, whatever you want to make of all of his issues with USADA. Nevertheless, I think you can all agree there was a degree of surprise to his game and a degree of unconventionality, but relative to the guy who fought Andre Guzmao or Stephen Bonn or even Jake O'Brien, a lot less of that. It's a much more coordinated, honed, refined game. I wonder if that's the path that Tom Dukenwa has to go to, if he has to go like full circle on this one, where he has to give up some of the things he was doing because he has no appropriate setups for them anymore against the elite guys. But if he can bring all the other parts of his game up to speed, he can then reintroduce them later as he gets a greater degree of, you know, uh, not basics exactly, but like sort of mastery of fundamentals or something. Terry and Ware, I thought, was doing super big damage to the body. Ridiculous damage to the body. Absurd damage to the body. I thought he had done, frankly, more damage to the body than, than Tom Dukenwa did with those leg kicks, which were really his most effective weapon for the most part. Um, both guys had some decent jabs here and there. Here, here's my point about this. If you score that fight as a whole, like they do in one or they did in Pride, I'd score it for Terry and Ware. And you could score for Terry and Ware even the 10-9 must system. I'm just saying personally, I'd score for Terry and Ware that way. If we're scoring by rounds, I'd probably lean a little bit more Dukenwa, but it's debatable, highly debatable. Um, but Terry and Ware, man... He's just had a bit of a tough run facing Tom Dukenwa. Who did he fight in his last one? Because I know his, his previous one was, um, of course, Cody, St Cody Stamen, which was at featherweight, if I'm not mistaken. Cody Stamen, of course, beat both of these guys. Here we go. Here is uh, the Tarion Ware. Three losses in a row. Yeah, Cody Stamen, Sean O'Malley, and Tom Dukenwa. Man, that is a fucking murderer's row to go through. Mm, that is tough for him. And all three of them he went the distance with, too. Man, that is tough. And he beat good fighters, too, like Nick Mamelis and Jared Papazian. Mm. KO'd him in the third round. Man, that is tough. That is tough. 
I don't know what's going to happen to him. He's a good fighter. You know, he deserves better than that. But what are you going to do, man? You, you let them go to the judges, and it's close. You just cannot complain anymore. And apparently him and his team, according to John Morgan from uh, from MMA Junkie, him and his team were apparently walking by press row stunned. You cannot be stunned. Gentlemen, you cannot be stunned. I know you think you won. I'm not asking you to not think that you won. But here's the reality. You let a fight go to the judges, and it's close. There is virtually, not not entirely, but virtually any scorecard is acceptable at that point. Or at least justifiable to the athletic commissions. And even more than that, while this may have been self-regulated, uh, a 30-27, uh, I'm not sure which judge pulled that in. All they have to do is be able to say, well, this is what I saw. And this is how it looked to me. This is what I mean when I go back to epistemological and spatial bias. Right? So... Um, Tom Dukenwa, much needed win. But the bigger question there is what lingers ahead, right? What is he going to be able to really do there, given that the thing that made him special is, for the most part, absent? Plus, he does have some cardio issues, although credit starting wear for exacerbating them. Which takes us to the opener on the main card Leon Edwards taking on Peter Sabota. And he wins, by the way, one of two fights on this card. Unbelievable. Winning at 4.59 of the third round. Uh Oh, so amazing. Peter Sabota is a much better offensive fighter than he is a defensive fighter. And to the extent that he was on the offensive, if he was going for a takedown, or if he was pushing forward, if he was being first with the jab, he was having a degree of success. Leon Edwards is a better striker. I think he got a little bit stuck in a rut trying to find certain punches that he he thought would be better for him. But um, And he called out uh, Darren Till, which we'll talk about in just a second. But... Um, good performance from, from Leon Edwards. Um, but Peter Sabota just, if he wants to win, and I and I want to give credit to Dan Hardy. Dan Hardy was like, yo, this guy's really improved, man. You should give him a second a second chance. And uh, he's right about that. He has clearly improved. It's just that there's a certain, a certain rhythm to a fight that he needs to have that he didn't in this case, where he's got to be the one leading the charge. He's got to be on top of it. He's got to be on top of you. He's got to be pushing you back. He's got to really be the aggressor. If he's not that... He's just not the same kind of fighter, unfortunately. And Leon Edwards, very, very capable striker. Looking for um, the same kind of punch over and over. I think it was an overhand right, overhand left. I have to go back and look. It was an overhand. Um, but uh, he calls out uh, Darren Till. Let me make a point here, if I can, about um, Darren Till. And if you know, just for the fun of it and the fuck of it, let's do this, shall we? Let's go up and, and do this. All right, so here, here's I want to say something about this. Did y'all not love Darren Till's unbelievable UFC Liverpool call-out? Uh, not call it exactly up. What do they what do they call him pro wrestling? A promo or, or or something? Man, I was fired up. I cannot wait until UFC Liverpool. I can't wait until this contest. I can't wait until that day on May 27th. I don't even know who Darren Till's fighting. I'm not even sure I really care. Oh my god, what a day that is going to be. I love his scouse accent. I love how authentic it is. I love uh I love uh how I lo- MMA, look, man, <laughs> you watch a fight between pick people, a Chinese dude and a Mexican dude, right? Here we go, just two names, right? Chinese boxer and a Mexican boxer. I'm sorry if the camera's a little bit wobbly. If you watch that, it's the only time in your life where Chinese people can be like, yo, who are you rooting for? And I'd be like, I'm rooting for the Chinese guy. And, and the Mexican guys can be like, and even everybody else, Latinos can be like, yo, I'm rooting for the, the Mexican guy. You are allowed to be tribal. You are allowed to have tribal alliances. There's a new book out by this academic at Yale Law School named Amy Chua, I believe. Let me verify that before I get myself into trouble. Uh, she made an excellent point on an interview I saw. Yeah, Amy Chua. Uh, and she made a point. There was a study done with uh, toddlers and sort of uh, 
very, 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 very young children. And they showed them a picture. And the picture, there were people wearing red shirts and people wearing blue shirts. And when they came in the room, they told them you were either a blue shirt or a red shirt. Now, they didn't tell them anything else about what it meant to be in the red shirt or what it meant to be blue shirt. They didn't tell them why they were red shirt or why they were blue shirt. They just told them these people you can see are yellow and blue. You are yellow, or excuse me, red and blue. You are red and you are blue, whatever. And it went one by one by one. And what they did was they would ask the kids about character traits from the people from the opposite team or even their own same team. Does this person look trustworthy? Does this person look like they're someone of high character? And what they and also like their physical looks as well. And what they found was that even at that young age, these kids didn't know anything about the people in the picture. They didn't know anything about what it meant to be in the red shirt or team blue or whatever the fuck. And even these little kids all had much higher character evaluations from people that they were believed to be on their same team and lower lower character evaluations from people who were on the red team. Um, they had much lower evaluations for people on the opposite team for physical looks and everything. Like They rated them lower almost across the board, rated their own team higher across the board for people they didn't know for an allegiance they didn't even understand. All right, Here's my point about that. Look, sometimes that can lead to a pretty toxic world, but sometimes it leads to an awesome world. Sometimes it makes game the game fun. People who go out there and deny, like, I want to root for anybody. Yes, you should be able to root for whoever you like. If someone's from a completely different part of the world than you, then absolutely fall in love with them uh, as a fan and do all that. But part of what makes the fight game exciting is that we are allowed to say, yo, I want to root for that motherfucker because he's just like me. It's one of the few times you're allowed to say that. Write down, if you want, to racial lines. Write down to national lines, regional lines, city lines, cultural lines, whatever. Whatever the fault line is, you're allowed to do that. How many times in your life are you allowed to do that without a a great degree of of sin or backlash, man? You've got to embrace that. That's what makes this awesome and fun and unique and different. And him going out there and talking about how much he loves Liverpool and uniting across various soccer or football teams and having that accent and being the genuine article, that is what the fight game is about. And it's not even just Brazilian versus you know the world or, or Brazil versus the world. Or you know, They do a little bit of that in Brazil. We're talking down to like a city, down to like an accent, down to like a something different, right? That is what we're talking about here, and I loved it. I loved every bit of it. I, I was I was fist pumping and donkey donkey kicking here in my studio. We need more regionalism in the game. We need and that and and, and more event planning around the game, right? We we have a guy from this place. He's gonna have a big test. Let's put it in his city. That's what we need to be doing. I love that kind of thing. By the way, the book you want to check out from Amy Chua is. Um, Political Tribes, Group Instinct, and the Fate of Nations. That is now available. So you can go check that out. Really interesting book. Uh, Okay, so let's go back to the main one. And then we transition back. Okay. Oops, here we go. So, great, great shout out. And great promo, whatever they call that, for uh, by Darren Till. Loved it. All right. This takes us to the preliminary card. Not going to spend a ton of time on this. And by the way, if you have a question for me, you can see my Twitter address below at lthomasnews. Please give me a follow. Same thing on Instagram, Luke Thomas News. Um, but if you shoot me a tweet at uh, lthomasnews, I will answer them at the end of this broadcast. So go ahead and do that now. Poor favor. Uh, by the way, I've got your performance of the night here. Let's see. I'll, I'll get to these in just a minute. Charles Bird absolutely dominating John Phillips, getting a rear naked choke at 358 of the first round, taking him down, taking his back. Yet another choke that we've seen that where 
he didn't necessarily have the throat at first. He kind of had the gable grip, right? Like this. Take your hands. I know what a gable grip is. No one shows it to you. Take your hands. Rotate it to where your fingers come on top of the thumb and your th fingers come on top of the blade. That is a gable grip. Finger on thumb, fingers on blade. Gable grip. Where he gets, or you can do it either way, right? Either way. Gable grip. So like this. He gets a gable grip on, and then he has it over the chin. What does he do? Snatches John Phillips off of his base, bows him out, goes his hips in. So he's like, eh, like that, right? And then what happens is when you get bowed out, everything you get you get thoracic extension everything comes up it just slides underneath and uh, it started from a crank so all you need is just the jaw and a good position snatch him off the base drive the hips in choke sinks he just dominated him from the beginning of that fight danny roberts defeating uh, oliver Encamp. time to kick Encamp threw a kick they reset throws the exact same shit without setting it up in a different way Roberts timed him, hit him with a shot, and dropped him there. May have been a bit of an early stoppage, but nevertheless, pretty good job um, by him. That happened at 212 of the first round. All right, uh, Danny Henry. Def oh my God, Danny Henry. Defeating Hakeem Dewadu, guillotine choke with a, a 39 uh, seconds of the first round. Yo, goes out there and bombs on him. He, he brought that right hand from the depths of hell, put it on his chin. And here is the best part about it. Go back and look at why Danny Henry kept that uh, guillotine. Yes, he was trying to finish him with the guillotine, but what he was really trying to do was maintain position and wait to really reapply it when he had a better chance. He didn't just sit for the guillotine and go balls out. He waited to see what would happen in the scramble, and then when they readjusted, he would get a little bit tighter. But there were times where he would post on an elbow and post on a hand, but then keep it. He was using, he would, he would realize it's not going to go the first time. So let me do all the things I need to do to just keep, keep a secure hold while we go through the motions. And then I'm going to slowly, you know, cinch it closer and closer and closer and closer. Finally, by that time, getting him almost like a standing or like a kneeling guillotine in the end there. That was to me was the big story was that Danny Henry didn't just like offensively put it on him, but... He didn't just try and sit for the guillotine where a head pops out and I've got nothing left. He sat for it and then Duwadu would roll through and they would go to their base. He would keep that hold, but he wouldn't just, just, just oh, I've got I've to get this guillotine now or something. He didn't do any of that. He waited and waited and waited and waited until finally he knew he had a good position and it was slowly getting tighter. And then he closed the show when he needed to. What a performance by Danny Henry. Fan-fucking-tastic. Uh, Paul Craig defeating Magomed uh, Ankalaev at the last minute. Ankalaev was so strong, physically out-wrestling him that you saw uh, Dan Hardy talk about him taking him off from his knees, from like a double and then turning the corner, like an absurd level of strength and physicality. Um, so, Paul Craig at 459. Two Scotsmen. Uh, no, no, sorry, Leon Edwards is the other one, but another Scotsman, I guess, in Danny Henry. But in this, this case, at 459, throws up a triangle, and just gets it. By the way, triangles, your feet should never be extended. They should be up, toes pointing up, right? And if you never, you don't believe me, take your calf and feel it, right? Your hamstrings are engaged, right? And if your toes point up and you bring your foot up, you can even do it with your forearm. You can feel your muscle contract, right? So go back and look at Fabrizio Verdum's triangle on Fedor. His feet are not pointed. They're up because it makes everything tighter. Go look at Paul Craig. They were like, how did that choke get there so fast? A lot of reasons, one of which was he had perfect positioning with the calf over the back of the neck, and the other one was both feet up, which makes everything even tighter. 
and just a no-quit attitude from Paul Craig. I thought, man, he's about to get another loss here, and it's not going to be good for him. And from the and by the way, it was the last fight on his contract. Are you kidding me? Unbelievable. Unbelievable job by Paul Craig. I was really, really impressed by just the no-quit attitude that guy brought to this contest. Uh, Cajun Johnson defeating Stevie Ray. I don't know that I saw it that way. I think I saw it for Stevie Ray, but he wins 29-28, 28-29, and then 29-28. Insults the audience when it was over. Cajun Johnson was much better in this one than he was against um, Adriano Martins. But he has this weird thing where I can't believe guys don't time him better, where he's going side to side to side to side to side. But apparently it's enough where uh, it doesn't really work. And then Dmitry Soznovsky defeating Mark Godby or Rear Choke at 429 in the second round. Basically did whatever he wants, took him down, passed, got the back. Wasn't a whole lot to it. Your perf- your your bonus winners tonight, uh, Paul Craig and Alexander Volkov get your performance of the night bonus. And then your fight of the night, Jan Blahovich taking on Jimmy Manoa. Real shame. Real shame that Danny Roberts, excuse me, Danny Henry. Danny Roberts too, but Danny Henry doesn't get anything. Or even Charles Bird, but you know what, maybe next time. All right, you got a tweet for me. Shoot me one at L Thomas News. You can see it down below. Right there. Yes, you can see it down below. Shoot me a tweet. Let me know what's going on. Let me know what you guys think. All right. Uh, I see some compliments here on the new setup. Look at that professional looking studio. Well, it's not, not professional yet, folks. I am scratching the surface. I am barely there. Barely there. All right, let's look at this. Uh, People asking, has Father Time caught up with Fabricio? Let's sort of look at that here for a second. Fabricio is 40. He'll be 41 in August. Yeah, man. It is very possible. I mean, understand, he won the World Jiu-Jitsu Championships in the Gi in 2004. 2004. It's been 14 years since he was out there doing his best work. So, just understand what we're dealing with here. Uh, new set looks great. Thank you. Question, why doesn't Vitaly Minikov fight in the UFC or Bellator? 21 and known he's, he's better than Volkov. God, I've been able to follow that story in a while. He was supposed to be with, with Bellator for a while, and then they let him go, and then... I don't know why UFC hasn't resigned him, and then he fought on like a show that was on Fight Pass. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. By the way, just to make it fun, let's read these. Uh, okay. Someone says Kane's going to come back and kill all of your young bloods. He might. He might. But you know, we'll see about that first. Someone says, new studio looks great. Absolutely worth the wait. I'm telling y'all. Telling y'all. Just getting started. Uh, let's see. Okay. Let's see. How do you think the turnover at heavyweight will affect Kane Velasquez? Do they still strap a rocket to him on his return? Or make him fight his way back up to Stipe? P.S. I'm making my pregnant wife view your content with me for the first time right now. Please say hi. Hello, pregnant wife. Hope you're doing well. Uh, okay. The Cain Velasquez one is difficult to, uh, to know because it's so speculative. Um, part of me wants to believe he'll pick right up where he left off because he already... Remember, remember, 
he had a lead on the game, the Fabrizio Verdun fight notwithstanding, he had a lead on the game for so long. Even like three, four fights in, he was better than fighters way senior than him. The question is now, what has happened to that? And the question is, who really out there would be a really bad matchup for him? Maybe Nganu, but the wrestling makes you feel like it wouldn't be. Maybe Volkov, but then the wrestling feels like it wouldn't be because the activity of Velasquez, provided he can still do that, and he has guard passing when he has activity, and he has great ground and pound, so that would be an issue. Um, Derek Lewis, same thing. Uh, Curtis Blades. The wrestling there would be an interesting one, but then he could trade on the feet with him. So you still feel like Kane, in in your mind, in your mind, it still feels like Kane is very, very competitive. Very, very competitive. But is he competitive enough? Is he... What's he going to look like when he comes back? And nobody knows. Nobody knows. So if Kane is who we think he is still, I do believe that confidence in him is well is well placed. The question is... Is he that guy? There's only one way to find out, and we don't really know. We don't. We just don't know. All right. Uh, anything else about this card that is of note to you, donkeys? Uh, given the thinness of the light heavyweight division, do you think it's possible that Blahovich could be in title contention within two to three fights? Yes. Sure. Plus, there are no other issues related to having a mutual camp. Now he'd have to go through Latifi. Um, but yes, I don't think anyone at light heavyweight is particularly far away from from a title shot. Right? I mean, that, that is contingent upon the champion defending it, but but yeah. It's, it's, it's how, how could anyone be far away? Uh, let's look very quickly. Very quickly. This Twitter feed here on my phone because sometimes I get a bit of a different push. All right. Anything else? That's about it. Okay. Please like... The, oh, here we go. Yes. Please like the video like that. Subscribe to the channel like that. I really appreciate it when you do. Like I said, boys and girls, I know I've been promising a lot. Uh, we'll see how things go in the future, but... I hope that the first one was a bit of a success. I thank you guys so much for watching. And until next time, I won't say get some sleep. Here's what I will say. And I have green socks on in case everyone's wondering. Go enjoy your St. Patrick's Day responsibly. Don't drink and drive. Thank you guys so much for watching. I'll see you next time.